Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts. Set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is our final sermon on the sermon series on Paul's letter to the Colossians, number 10. And uh, in, in some ways, what we're going to do is we're going to begin the last sermon similarly to how we began the first sermon in this series, in that I want to talk briefly about Paul. Because Paul, the, the one who wrote all of the epistles that have his name attached to it, oftentimes gets a bad rap. You will hear preachers in the church, teachers in the church, people who may not totally believe that the Bible really is the Word of God, who will slam Paul and say, you know, really, we don't have to read Paul, or Paul doesn't understand, instead of trying to understand Paul. That Paul, in fact, was an incredible and godly man. He wasn't perfect. The only perfect person is Jesus. So Paul was not a perfect person. That's not what this is about. But a lot of people read Paul with tainted glasses because they misread him, they misunderstand him, they don't understand the context, they don't understand the history, they don't understand the culture, and so they put Paul down as if his epistles aren't Scripture, and they are. If you read through the Scriptures, and you read in particular Paul's letters, what you will discover is that Paul, first and foremost, was a man of prayer. Look a lot of times at the beginning of his letters, and he talks about how he's praying for people, and sometimes includes a prayer. And sometimes at the end of letters as well. But Paul was a praying man. He was given over to prayer, believed in the power of prayer. Paul's testimony and witness was powerful. How the Lord took him and how he was converted and transformed and it took years and then the Lord used him in wonderful ways. And he would move from being <coughs> Paul the Apostle to Paul a sinner. Paul the chief of sinners. That he knew his own clay feet. He knew he was a sinner and he wasn't perfect. But he's a powerful writer. On the other hand, if you were to look in Acts chapter 20, apparently, at least at times, he was a boring preacher. He was preaching in a house one time, and someone was sitting up in a window and fell out of the window. That hasn't happened here yet. It might. But I mean, that's just one example. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul even talks about how he is perceived as someone who, when he comes in person, he's weak. He's not eloquent. He's not an incredible speaker. And then when he goes away, he writes these really strong letters. Because probably preaching and teaching was not his top gifts. But he was committed to communicating the gospel. 
to be a preacher and a teacher and so much more. And he was tremendously gifted, but even more than just gifted, he was wholly given over to the Lord and he was wholly given over to the people. He loved people. He cared for people. And Paul was personable and personal. He may have been one of those preacher, teacher, pastors who their gift was more about one-on-one relationally and in his writing more than he was known for his speaking. Because we have clergy and pastors out there like that. But those may have been Paul's gifts and the Lord used them mightily. And if you look at who Paul wrote to, and how he wrote to them, and how he wrote to them with loving terms, and caring terms, and compassion. He cared about the church, and he cared about individuals. Paul understood that when we're called to the Lord, and we're walking in relationship with Him, we are also called into community. That we're called to be in relationship with one another. If you look at the Gospel reading for today, and you look at the Epistle, What you see are these personal relationships. That there is community. That Jesus was not always just on his own, praying to the Father or doing his own thing. That he was surrounded by community. That Paul, when he did his ministry, he had people around him who he shared community with and shared ministry with. And that's what we're called to be as his people. Yes, we're called into that individual relationship with the Lord. We have that one-on-one relationship. Absolutely. We need to be in the Word, and we need to be prayerful, and we need to be connected to Him personally because He's a person. This isn't just about duty or laws. It's about relationship, learning to love the Lord more and more. And then we bring that to each other, and we love each other in the Lord. We serve in the community together. We are not lone rangers. We are together in this. That's what Jesus revealed. That's what Paul revealed. Jesus, in this scene, he says, you call me teacher and and master, and that's what I am. But did you see what I did? I washed your feet. I served you. And later on in John chapter 13, he would say, I call you friends. On the one hand, we are his servants. We are called to be his disciples, people who learn from him. But also we're his friends. There's a sense of community and fellowship. And that's how Paul related to and connected to his people. His fellow workers. See, faith is not just about sitting around, taking in. Faith is about growing and blossoming. Think about how many aspects of our lives that if we're not growing, if we're not pursuing, if we're not moving forward, we're actually moving backward. For example, if you're involved in sports or you just want to stay in shape, you go without working out for a period of time and you've lost ground. You're not in shape. If you are a musician and you don't practice and keep your fingers nimble if you're doing something with your fingers or your voice, which is a muscle in tune, you're going to lose it. If you're one of those who is involved in a job and you have to stay sharp, particularly if you're involved in the technologies, computer, you have to stay ahead of the game unless you opt out of the game, which is what I did. What I, did. I have a flip phone. I don't care. But if you care, if you care, then you will want to stay in the game. 
See, that's what our faith is. Do we care about the Lord? Do we care about incorporating His love into our hearts and lives and living it out in community with other people, in our families, with our friends, in the church, and taking it to the world? Because that's what He wants. That's what He wants for us and from us. That we're connected, we're invested, we're involved. You know, one of the, one of the sections of Scripture where Paul writes about this whole notion and idea of being connected and being part of a body. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the various gifts of the Spirit, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have a gift, at least one, that you are meant to share with the body of Christ. That we are connected one to another, and that we are supposed to be not just pew potatoes. We're supposed to be doing something. Sharing that gift so that we're blessed in the process, but so that other people are blessed as well. Because the whole purpose and point of the gift is for you to be invested, involved, using your gift. You feel useful to the Lord and you bless other people. And no one is exempt. And then you get to 1 Corinthians 14. And you see Paul talking about there's different parts of the body and different aspects of the body. And some people are in more prominent roles or more pronounced roles and some people have you know those behind the scene gifts skills abilities and i talked about last week how if you even have a cuticle or you have a sore toe how it affects the whole body that's why we need to be caring for one another that's why we're all connected there is no better than or worse than we're all part of the body of christ we just serve different roles and capacities that's why jesus talked about being friends that's why Paul elevates all the people he's talking about. We're just connected to one another and we're part of the body. And if you're not connected and you're not involved, you're missing it. Because we are his hands, his feet, his voice today in the world. And for one another. Sandwiched in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 is that famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13, there's logic, which is the body of Christ, loving one another. It's not just about weddings, okay? It's not what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. It's about what agape love looks like, what it means to love someone. As we grow in the love of Christ, what that love looks like in community, not in isolation. And that's what he's talking about. Are you really loving one another? Does the church know your mind because you love one another? And serve care. So that's the context in which Paul writes these final words in his letter to the Colossians. And the first thing I want to point out as we enter this last section is that he talks about in these terms when he's writing to people, beloved or brothers and sisters. Those are two of his favorite phrases. Beloved. A word that John would relate that that's how he felt of the Lord when he wrote his gospel. The beloved disciple was referring to himself. When he writes his own letters, he uses the word beloved. This sense of being loved and sharing love. Beloved. And brothers and sisters, there's another great term. We're part of the same family. Once we come to Christ and we know Him as Savior and Lord, we are part of the same family. And what do brothers and sisters do sometimes? They fight. That doesn't mean you're out of the family, and it doesn't mean you should treat someone else as they're out of the family. It happens. 
We don't always get along with everyone. But we're brothers and sisters and we love one another and we're part of the same family and we're supposed to have a family resemblance. And we need to learn what it means to get along as his family. And so there's this connectedness we have through Christ as being a part of his family. And what you discover as you dig into this is the various connections of these people with Paul as you walk through this list of names. Now, temptation. I understand. When you come to a list of names in Scripture, what is your typical reaction? You look for the end of the name so you can read what really is important. Right? Who wants to mess with the name? Particularly when you get into the Old Testament. Man, some of those lists in Numbers... In Chronicles, it's just painful. I mean, I'm used to reading the Bible, and I'm used to pronouncing a lot of these names. I can't pronounce some of them. But there's meaning. There's importance. Everybody in the body of Christ, everybody who's a believer has a purpose. Everybody has a story. You ever heard that one? Everybody has a story. And it's their life. And that's why what you see in Scripture are names. And in particular, in the New Testament, when they're not just listing begat, 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 but in the New Testament, when you come across these lists of names, for me, there's easier connections to find meaning in them. Sometimes you have to do a little digging, like you have to plow the ground in order to plant, in order to grow. You have to break the ground. But if you look, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, you see the chronology of Jesus. If you look in Luke 3, you see the chronology of Jesus. It's wonderful to know his family tree and what happened in his family tree. It wasn't pretty sometimes, by the way. But it's great to know those names and what it means. And if you look, by the way, in Colossians chapter 4, we have this list we're going to go through quickly in a moment. Those names and what they mean to Paul and what they mean in the church. Remember, Paul had not been to Colossae. He writes Romans to the Romans at one point that he's intending on going to Rome. If you look in Romans chapter 16, he already knows a bunch of people. He's already connected. He may not even know some of them. There's men. There's women. There's people that are new in the faith, old in the faith. There's people that serve various roles and capacity. There's people that don't have their act together. But they're all part of the list. Just like we need to be part of the church, connected to one another. That's the point. That's why there's names, and that's why there's stories, and that's why there's relationships. Paul is personal, and he cares about people. So let's go through this list of names real quick. You probably thought I was kidding. Tychicus. Tychicus. Who's Tychicus? You know Tychicus, really, his primary role here is? Because you really don't hear much about him other than here. He's a messenger. He's the one that carries the letter to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to Philemon. He's a messenger. That's his ministry, his faithful minister. We don't know anything else that he does besides this. But let me tell you something about a messenger in Scripture. Number one, they had to be trusted. They had to be faithful. They had to be intentional. Because sometimes you go through dangerous times and oftentimes you go at your own expense. Secondly, the word... Messenger. You know what it is in, in the Greek? Messenger? It's angel. Don't you love that? 
The word in Greek is angel. It's where we get, by the way, the word evangelism. Shock. Euangelion in the Greek. U is a prefix that means good or well, much like euthanasia or eulogy. It's a prefix that means good or well. And angelion, the base of that is angel. It's the angel or the messenger that brings the good news. Tychicus, in many ways, was serving as Paul's evangelist, bringing these letters to the various places he's sending them to. That's an important role in ministry. Don't ever think that if you're carrying messages of the gospel, messages friend to friend, messages of caring from the church or from the Lord, that you're not doing something important. Because Tychicus did. And he was a trusted friend of Paul. And then we see Onesimus. And he refers to him, this is great, he refers to him as a beloved brother. Remember what Onesimus is. He's a slave. And he calls him a beloved brother. See, Paul is trying to elevate, he's trying to make a level plane. There is no ownership of people. You care about people. You learn to treat people as brothers and sisters no matter what role or position you're in. That's what Paul is trying to stress. And by the way, Philemon, there's a play on words here. Philemon, his owner at one point, which is one of the reasons he sends the letter to Philemon, his owner, Onesimus, ran away. And Philemon basically is saying of Onesimus, he's useless. You know anybody like that? He's useless. And Paul calls him by his proper name, Onesimus, which means useful. Isn't that wonderful? Useful. And he's a beloved brother to boot. And over time, this changed relationship would change a household, Philemon's household. And it would eventually, down through the centuries, change the world away from slavery. And it's still our work to do so. Change this mindset that people are lesser than. Change this mindset that people are property or objects. It's a constant battle. But that's what Paul's trying to do here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Great, another jailbird, my buddy. You know, you know what's interesting about that? Is that when Paul is saying that, I guarantee you it's an endearing term. Ron has served in Kairos. He can tell you about brothers that he's met in Kairos, in prison. Let me draw an analogy, though. My son Daniel, when he came back from Afghanistan. Daniel is usually one of those guys that when he shows up anywhere, his thought, I know, I guarantee his thought is, aren't you glad I'm all, everybody, I'm here. You just watch him. That's Daniel. But it's really interesting what happened when he came home from Afghanistan. We were talking and he said, Dad, you know what I found out? Since I've been back, I want to spend time with Natalie, it's his wife, and the guys who I've been through this with who understand. Who understands what Paul's gone through? What it has cost Paul, but people who have been through the same thing, who have been persecuted and whipped and put in prison for the sake of the gospel. That's why when Paul simply says, my fellow prisoner, he's making a point. It's someone who understands. Someone who's been there with me. 
If you've ever been through some painful or challenging situation in your life, oftentimes you want someone who understands. And that's what Paul is saying about Aristarchus. Mark. Now you need to listen how I'm going to describe Mark. He's a former ex-friend. Think about that. He's a former ex-friend. What we hear about Mark and Paul in Acts chapters 12 through 15 is they did ministry together. And then at some point, Mark backed out. He wimped out. We don't know exactly what happened. But then later on, when they were getting ready to go on their missionary journeys again, Paul said, I don't want Mark to come with us. And Barnabas' uncle, after they had a dispute, Barnabas said, I'll take him under my wing. So Barnabas goes out with Mark, and Paul goes out with Silas. Years later, Mark and Paul are doing ministry together again. Years later, we see in Timothy, where Paul says, bring Mark to me, for he is useful to me. Just like Onesimus, useful. We need to learn how to have former ex-friends. Because we're not good at it. We are not good at working our way through challenging relationships and forgiving people. And we need to learn how to be good at that. Because that's part of our witness. How do we love people? How do we love people that are difficult to be with? Not everybody's pleasant to be with. Do you ever notice that? But you grow and you learn as you deal with personalities other than yourself. People that are difficult and challenging. People that have unfortunate personalities. That's right, Martha. We all know you have an unfortunate personality. You know, there's people all of us are challenged to in our lives, but you know what? You grow in your ability to love. We all need that. I don't have a choice. When someone walks through my door, I have to deal with them, you know? The blessing of that is I've grown. I've learned how to get along with a variety of people, to love a variety of different people. We all need to be that way. That's part of the challenge of the Christian life, of growing in that ability to love. Then he goes on to say, Epaphras... He's his friend. He's the church planter in Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. He's the pastor, and he's praying for them. Even when he's away and he's with Paul, they're probably talking about what's going on. He's consulting Paul. Paul says, let me write a letter. So Epaphras is a caring pastor. Justice. Justice may be the justice of Acts chapter 1, who took Judas's place, possibly. So you need to you know, maybe do a little more study with that. Who is this justice? Because Paul doesn't say much. Luke, the beloved physician. Let me tell you about Luke. Luke is a guy who, if you read Acts chapter 16, verse 6, Luke writing the Acts of the Apostles as well as his Gospel says, and they went, talking about Paul and his group. By the time you get to halfway through Acts chapter 16, you see, and we. Luke joined him, and apparently Luke was with him the rest of his life. Luke saw it as his ministry to help Paul do his ministry by caring for him taking care of him, the physician. And I believe that Paul, in his association with both Mark and Luke, 
influenced both of them to become writers. Think about it. Paul started writing his letters in the 40s. Luke and Mark wrote their Gospels in the 60s. So my guess is Paul may have had an influence on them. That's what we're meant to do and be with one another too. Encourage one another. Support one another. Equip one another. That's part of what it means for the body of Christ. Older Christians, more mature Christians need to help younger Christians. Younger Christians need to come around older Christians in order to grow. We need the body of Christ. We need to disciple and we need to be discipled. That's part of what it means to be involved in the body. Then we come to Demas. Demas is an interesting one. He doesn't say anything about Demas at this point. I think that in Paul's mind, Demas was already starting to compromise his faith. And I think he took the Bambi approach. If you can't say something nice, don't say something at all. Right? He took the Bambi approach. He's writing to a whole city, didn't want to really give Demas a bad name. But when he writes to his friend Timothy, a few years later, toward the end of 2 Timothy, he says, And Demas, who has deserted me, because he's been taken by this present world. He gave up his faith and decided he wanted to be of the world. And I think Paul may have already sensed that here, but didn't want to say anything bad about him, especially to a bunch of people. When he wrote to his friend Timothy, he unpacked what was going on. And sometimes we have people in our lives that do that too. And then we see finally Nympha. Nympha, who is a woman. Nympha, who's a leader. Nympha, who's in a house church in Laodicea. And Paul elevates her. See the variety of relationships that Paul deals with. Not everybody's comfortable. Not everybody's easy. Not everybody's at the same place. He's not prejudiced against women. He was personal. And personable. He cared. He cared about the church. He cared about people. And he saw ministry as a shared thing that everybody is a part of. Everybody. Secondly, Paul was very aware of what was going on around him geographically, historically, culturally, socially. In order to be able to be effective with the gospel, in order to relate to people and understand their lives. We need to be students of people. We need to be students of the world. We need to be students so that we understand the culture and we're able to communicate the gospel in the culture. If you are a disciple, part of the word disciple and part of the idea of disciple is you're constantly learning. You're learning about the word, you're learning about the world, and you're learning to bring the two together. That's part of our call as Christians. I love being a student of people trying to figure out what in the world is going on sometimes. But that's part of our call. If we're going to grow and develop and blossom, we need to learn about people. He knew about these cities. He knew about Laodicea. He knew the challenges and temptations there. If you read Revelation chapter 3, how they were tempted to compromise. Wealthy city, they were tempted to compromise. A lot of wealthy people are tempted to compromise. That's why Jesus said it's difficult for the rich people. 
because they want to live for themselves. Jesus challenges us to live for others, to live for the kingdom. And then there's Hierapolis. Hierapolis is an interesting place. They had hot springs. It was known as a place of healing. Just by the mere fact that you soak in these springs, kind of like Bath in England, when you want to find a hot tub in England when you're there. Whereas Paul keeps pointing people to the true healer. And the people of Hierapolis needed to know who the true healer was. Martha and Robert Horn put on a healing conference yesterday. About 30, 35 people were really blessed by that. But they talked about who does the real healing. I was in uh, a hospital in San Antonio. This was years ago, about 25 years ago, visiting someone in my congregation there at the time. And I'll never forget, I walked into this guy's room. It was about 1988. And he had just experienced the procedure. And the doctor came in and he said, you want to see a video of the angioplasty we just did on this guy? I was glad I wasn't invited into the operating room, personally. But I said, sure, I'll view the video. And he showed me the video and it was the most fascinating thing. And I turned to the doctor and I said, boy, you you work on people's hearts. You know, you must have a a blessed skill, a real talent. And he said... Well, we need to know who the real healer is here. I was touched. I was touched. A doctor with humility. A doctor who knew the Lord. A doctor who knew who the real healer was. A doctor who knew who gave him the gifts and talents and ability. That's the kind of doctor I want. Luke is that kind of physician, but as they bring the gospel message to Hierapolis, they needed to tell people, the healing hot springs are great, but you need to know the real healer. Philemon and Onesimus, he knew the family, he knew what was going on. He knew the the father, the son, the wife, all their names are in scripture. And he says, this is how your household needs to change. Paul was willing to get into messy stuff. He was willing to confront. He was willing to deal with conflict. He was willing to bring truth into situations. So was Jesus. How often we skirt truth. How often we skirt confrontation. When it's really, as Jesus demonstrated, as Paul demonstrated, the loving thing to do. Jesus said in his first sermon, blessed are the peacemakers. And we need to understand peacemaking doesn't always mean that life is easy and you just go along bumping along. Sometimes you have to get into the mess of life and the mess of things. And that's what Jesus and Paul were willing to do. Thirdly, Paul finally concludes the letter with writing in my own hand. Now, you need to understand what that means. Paul, who really didn't know the people there, is trying to say, I want to make this letter personal. I want you to understand I care so much so that I'm going to sign it in my own hand. And if you look at the end of Galatians, what you'll see is was with big print. The reason is most people believe at this time that Paul was either going blind or blind. 
that he couldn't see, which is why he had someone taking down the letter as he was composing it in his head. Also, if you look in Corinthians, he sought the Lord for healing, and the Lord said, let my grace be sufficient for you. So Paul signs this letter to make sure they knew it was him. It was authentic. Epaphras wasn't kind of using Paul. And secondly, he says, remember my chains. Remember I'm in prison. Please pray for me. We need to lift each other up. And the prisons back then, my guess, weren't real nice. You know, if you ever think about that you might go to prison, I've never spent a night in jail yet. That still could change. But, you know, I'd love to go to one of those country club prisons. If I'm going to go, I might as well go there, right? But, you know, the prisons, the kind of prisons that Paul would have experienced, we saw a group of us when we went over to Zanzibar when we were doing a mission trip to Tanzania. It's basically a hole in the ground. That's what Paul experienced. That's what he suffered. That's why he needed Luke, the physician. Paul said, remember my chains. I mean, we're not even talking Motel 6. We're talking really bad. And he doesn't complain. He merely says, remember my chains. And then he says in the midst of that, a guy who's going blind, a guy who's in prison, he's in chains, and he says, grace be to you. When you're not in a good place and when you're struggling, is that typically your mode? It's because Paul's filled with grace. The reason is Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's a person of grace. Boy, learning to do that more and more is part of the challenge in my life because when I'm not in a good place, it's hard to be graceful. But see, as we grow in the Lord, we learn how to have our lives filled with grace. And as Paul writes this last chapter in Colossians, he says in the midst of this section, stand firm, stand mature. When we say the creed, we stand. Why? Because we are taking a stand on the truth. We're taking a stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be consistent and committed and courageous and uncompromising so that we can stand firm. Paul also says in the midst of this final section, be filled. We need to be filled with the truth, the word of God. Filled with his gospel. Filled with the person and the presence and power of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Every day. Constantly. And we need to encourage one another to fill one another. With His love and His patience and His grace. With forgiveness. Forbearing one another. Learning to, me, learning to understand what it means to be in community. In community. And then serving. Serving. Not just waiting for other people to serve you. Not this, the church to be a place where you just log time. Serving. Because that's what we're called to do and to be. As His people. As His church. And then he has this great line in the midst of that. 
Complete the task. Complete the task. When is the task complete? When you die. Or if Jesus comes back before you die. That's when the task is complete. Because there's going to be someone out there who needs to be ministered to. There's someone out there that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's someone out there that needs to be cared for. There's someone out there that needs to be brought into community. The task is not finished. And you are not finished. The retirement plan is great, but you don't get it till you die. Complete the task. Stand firm. Stand mature. Winston Churchill's famous speech. One line. Never give up. Never, never, never give up. We need to be His church. Together. Individually walking with Him. Together walking with Him. And build each other up. And be His witness in the world. Complete the task. Please bow with me in prayer. Paul writes to the Corinthians. For this perishable body must put on the imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord God, we are tempted to be like Demas compromising and compromised to acquiesce to the culture to the world instead of living fully and wholly and completely for you then in our commitment we waffle and we waver we sometimes struggle in relationships And Lord, you promised to equip us. You promised to send your Holy Spirit to us, to be your people, to be filled with your Spirit, to be empowered to love, to be empowered to stand for you in a challenging place, in a challenging world. Lord, I pray this day for those who have never truly come to know you as Savior and Lord, that they would understand the cross 
the depth of your love, the sacrifice you gave so that we might know you and have eternal life through you. For those here that are compromised, complacent, Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit and transform them. Lord, for all of us, empower us to be your church, individually and together, to love you with the whole of our being, to learn to love others even when it's challenging, and to be your witness in a world that seems to be growing darker. Lord, help us to be your church, to be your body in the world today. And we pray this in the powerful and loving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.